You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FN Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I'm so happy to have Lolita Hernandez here in the studio with me. Welcome, Lolita. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for picking the, the songs for today's show. I haven't heard that one in forever. And so what, what we'll just say is, Shut your mouth, but don't go away. Come and listen. (laughs) We don't think you're ugly. (laughs) Oh, you're beautiful. (laughs) So, so Lolita, why did why did you pick this song? Why is this? Oh, it's a central it's a central song. Um, It's called the Boo Boo Man song by Lord Melody, and I sort of grew up listening to it. And it's a central song for one of the stories, Old Year's Night, and I just love that song. I get a kick out of it. Yeah, you can't help but not, uh, you have to dance and smile, I feel like, when you hear the song. Even yeah. while it was just playing, I was moving and my arms the were arms out and I, I was ready. So don't, don't, um, don't feel shy about joining in at home, everyone listening out there, um, or if you're in your car. Before we go any further, I've got, we've got two books on the table. We've got your latest Lolita, Making Kalaloo in Detroit, mm-hmm. um, out this year with Wayne State uh, University Press. Um, thanks to Christina Stonehill for sending the book. And then we've also got Autopsy of an Engine and other stories from the Cadillac plant um, out with Coffee House Press, which Molly sent a long time ago to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That before. one came out in 2004. So, yeah, which is, yeah, but I'm, we're, we're going to talk about that one, too. Let's talk about okay. both of them. Okay. Without further ado, you're the short bio on the back of Making Kalaloo in Detroit. Born and raised in Detroit, Lolita Hernandez is the author of Autopsy of an Engine and Other Stories from the Cadillac Plant, winner of a 2005 Penn Beyond Margins Award. She is also the author of two chapbooks, Quiet Battles and Snake Crossing. She is a 2012 Kresge Literary Arts Fellow, and her poetry and fiction have appeared in a wide variety of literary publications. After over 33 years as a UAW worker at General Motors, she now teaches in the creative writing department in the University of Michigan Residential College. Speaking of the RC, you'll be having a reading in September for the I book. Am. Yeah, September 26th at uh, 5 in the Keene Theater. It's a beautiful theater in the East Quad Residential College. The, so I'm really excited about that. Yeah, so not, it's not too early to put it, mark it nope. on your calendar. Put it on your calendar, everyone. <laughs> we'll see you there. And it's. I keep thinking of the RC as newly renovated, but I guess maybe does it feel... How does it still feel is brand spanking new Lolita or is, oh, it, yeah, getting, yeah. is everyone pretty we've, used to it home homey again? Uh, well, I don't know. We've spent um, one calendar um, year there. Um, so um, I didn't arrive um, to the RC until 2006. So um, I have had some attachment to the old RC, but not quite the same as those who had been there for a long time. And so the new building looks new, um, and I guess over time it will develop character. 
<laughs> the students and the faculty will make sure of that. You That's know. Right. <laughs> yeah, just by their their vibe in it. I think yeah, it'll yeah. Be, the character will be will yeah. be there. The spirit is still there. <laughs> and and so um, in autopsy of an engine, in the the preface for that Lolita, I think you said that the 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 cat the plant actually closed in 2004 was it and then was that the last when the the smokestacks were lifted out and yeah where yeah that's when the last bit of whatever was cadillac went down but it had been happening over um a period of years even a little bit before i got there in 73 and so because oh, um, the foundry moved to the foundry Tokyo. moved and so on and so forth the the line moved they um um Excuse me, the motor line moved in, oh gosh, um, was it 77, something like that, 77, 78, and went to Livonia. And then little by little, you know, a plant that big is 90 acres and five, six floors, depending on which side of the street you were on. There's a lot of plant. I had a salvage area. It had a recycling area. It was a lot of things going on in that plant. And you... Um and you, you let's let's talk about when you started to write first. Let's, so we'll start with maybe we'll we'll start with the latest book and then maybe work work back, work back okay. to which might not seem natural, everyone. But hold on to your hats. <laughs> but when when did you? Here's an origin story, Lolita. When so when did you start writing? Because you, you came here as a student to the University of Michigan, mm-hmm. right? As a an undergrad. But when did your did your writing life start? When you were a little girl, or what? No, actually, it didn't start until after I got out of the um, University of Michigan, and I was involved in some theater groups. And um, I started writing poetry, and um, I started writing poetry about um, my mother and the islands and so on, although I had never seen them then. Um, but my she, She's a great storyteller, though. Great storyteller, and I just sort of um, picked up on it. And that's where I started, and I continue writing poetry. Um, and then when I arrived in the factory, um, I was writing poetry about the factory. And would you be, when you were on the line, would you be thinking, well, first of all, were you on the line? <laughs> or I started <laughs> out, yeah, I actually started out on the line. I think I was there for about five years. Um, I'm going to a- answer a question you haven't asked. Why did I go to the a factory <laughs> without, and I had a degree from the University and of Michigan. you were interested in the theater. So and, and stuff like that. Yeah. But, what, you know, what happened back in, in the day, if you had any kind of um, left politics in you, everybody went to the factory. Um, that's where you, you know, got with the masses and with the working class and all that. So I arrived there, too. To organize the workers who were actually already organized, they were unionized. So was UAW already established? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I guess we wanted to, you know, really sort of infuse some more politics into it. And um, so that's how I arrived there. So once I arrived there, I was there on the line, the... um, uh, the uh, uh, engine assembly line, the motor line at Cadillac for about five years. And then I um, um, applied to the skilled trades and I got in. And I think I was the first woman at Cadillac in the engineering, um, um, uh, um, what do they call it? The, the, the 
um, mechanics trade, the engineering mechanics trade, working with the prototype cars, and so on and so forth. I think he called it experimental layout and design, some long name. And then um, subsequently a few uh, other women came in into the program. And um, so I was a, a mechanic at toolboxes, and I was wrenching. It sounds like you were a trailblazer, and a bit of, and a bit of a lefty. Yeah. A bit of a lefty trailblazer, yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. And and so you were so so it's the theater really that got you to the the poems, and then the yeah. poems started coming to you even like at work, like when you were working with your your yeah. tools, like the hands and yeah. Um, I think I'll tell you. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, what um, what happens? Uh, what happened in those days of writing poetry? Um, once I was on the um, in the assembly plant, where um, a few failed relationships <laughs> that that'll always get you to crying and writing poetry. And <laughs> so there there were a couple of those. Uh, um, I think that spurred me on, even though. Maybe I started writing about my mother prior to that, but then I really got, um, I, I was really using poetry more and more um, to express myself after I, I realized I was doing such a lousy job at these relationships. So, And so, and what was the, the what was the, your, the poet, the poetry scene like, uh, and at that time? Well, you know, or was um, there a scene? There was a scene in Detroit because okay, so by this time I'm in I'm in Detroit again after being in, here in Ann Arbor school. I'm back in Detroit. I'm working on the assembly line, and then um, so I'm writing my poetry and getting a few little things um, published and starting to get into the uh, the scene in Detroit. Um, I want to say in the 80s it was really hot i always like to say poets were like rock stars but you know there was there were a lot of venues did you have where, a boa when you went to no readings, i didn't do that kind <laughs> of leather pants no I'm, i was pretty plain <laughs> and, but um i was getting on the scene that you know alexander's the, the um and the various venues where ml liebler and and ron allen and trino sanchez really sort of pulled me in through the um the the Latino Poets Association and and that kind of stuff, and one of the things that really amazed me is um, I thought okay this is a factory town, and um, but there no so I didn't hear a lot of poetry about working class stuff which surprised me um, about um, people working in the factory that sort of surprised me there weren't a, a a lot of folks doing that that came a little bit um later after a while and then um and the other thing is it was so male dominated there were women um out there but there were a lot of men dominating the poetry scene and that sort of surprised me they have a way. No. <laughs> we won't go there. No, no, not right now. No. Another time. Another another, time, uh, another, another, program, time. another book. Another book. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about what makes, because from the other book, Autopsy of an Engine, like we, it's this this one, you're, the stories are, are shaped around inspiration in the Cadillac plant. And in part, I, I think in the preface, you say in part of your grieving process of, exactly. of the plant closing and making sense of like the years there or in the lives, everyone interacting and the life 
of the factory. Right. Um, so what is making Callaloo in Detroit? Well, you know, I sort of um, felt after I was finished with writing about the Cadillac plant that I had come out of the plant and I was in the community. That was sort of where my head was at. Okay, um, I had retired in 2006. Here I am flopping around at the University of Michigan Residential College, having a great time with the students. They're wonderful. Those residential college students are wonderful. It's great faculty. It's a great environment. And um, and then these stories um, were willy-nilly um, I, I was I was writing them. Actually, some of them were written even before I probably left the plant. I think making bakes um, had a, you know had a different life a long time ago. I think that story could be at least 25 years old. But I, I revamped it. I hated it the way I originally wrote it, and it became part of what I'm calling my making series: making bakes, making buljol, making kalaloo, all food-based um, kinds of things. So. Um, now, now I'm going to quote Bill Harris. He's he's probably sick of me quoting him, but Bill Harris is he was a 2011 eminent artist, Kresge and eminent artist, and he he writes everything: plays, poetry, um, fiction, short, long, you, you name it. He writes it. He's he's loved in Detroit and nationally. And so um, I had Bill Harris come to my class here uh, uh, this past semester, um, the winter term, and I asked him. I said. Detroit is such a heavy poetry t uh, town, you know, will, will they ever arrive at stories? And here's what he told me. He said that um, back in his day when he started out, it was a heavy theater town. And then it moved to poetry. Then he said that there's so much radical change going on in the city, so so many lives uh, or, or you, you know, um, living uh, styles of life leaving, for example, industry and so on and so forth. The town is just shifting its base so much that people are going to need to write stories out of memory. Which you have which been is, doing. Which is what happened with me. Books. Exactly. So I realized that um, this has been happening to me and I didn't, I didn't have any consciousness to it. That, And that's probably why I gravitated from the poetry and began writing the stories in autopsy and then, you know, making Kalaloo is because I needed that space to get all of that memory and stuff in there and make those kind of connections that um, I, I wasn't sure I was able to do with poetry. Maybe other poets could do it, but I wasn't able to do it. Lolita, let's take a short break and we'll pick up there and okay. talk more about this, this space for memory. Okay. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz Engineering today on the program. Lolita Hernandez is here. Her book, Making Callaloo in Detroit, hot off the press from Wayne State University Press. We'll be right back. Oh. Oh, well, I'm sitting here loud, waiting for my ya-ya.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Lolita Hernandez is here, making Callaloo in Detroit. Her latest collection of stories is on the table, and also Autopsy of an Engine and other stories from the Cadillac plant. Um, Lolita, so that that was a snazzy number that had us jump in a bit in here. <laughs> Um, so, what's what's your um, what's your the, what's your memory connection to this particular song, and, and wow. how did you how did you decide to use it here? <laughs> yeah, it's um, it, it's strange even to me how a, a yaya or lala song. I can't <laughs> waiting for my yaya. That song by Lee Dorsey um, enters into a story about making Buljal. It just it doesn't seem like it would enter there. Um, and that's the funny thing about memory. Once you get going and you're, and you're trying to, um, I know, create this world, pretty soon you find yourself emotionally snatching up whatever it is you need to tell the story, to gather um, information, to paint the character, to paint the environment, to create the mood. And I... I almost always have some kind of singing or some kind of food I, I I'm not I assume that comes from my you know my parents um, so I, I always have to have some kind of and this, rhythm in it to you know to capture what's going this on. This would be Trinidad and Tobago and St. Vincent the, yeah. your your family's yeah. cultural. Yeah but certainly not the Yaya song. Okay. <laughs> Don't want to connect those two dots right now. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. Song was Detroit, <laughs> Lee Dorsey, as you could as you could tell. Um, but it did. And the other thing I want to say is that when I I write um, a character, I always have a face in front of me, someone I'm thinking of. And that story may not be about that person, but some something about that person, um, maybe um, I don't know, um, captures physically this character or, or something but even if it's not the character even themselves, if it's not the character then? themselves right huh can you give an example like the yaya song and this this person i'm picturing who's the, who i use as my character Mary, in yeah. the story the old man um did happen to like that song which i thought was really weird because he was an islander <laughs> and i thought it was very weird that he would pick up with that kind of song which i wasn't even um it's too okay. much aware of you so know catchy and it, yeah it was catchy and and so it it found itself in this story it you know i guess it gave him some dimension and it gave me something to sing about and something to dance about could could we hear part of the story sure. later I am. Okay. So this story, Making Buljol, is about um, this uh, young woman who's from an island, and she um, is making buljol. It's a codfish dish, and it's, she's been called by her cousin to make it because this old man is dying, and the buljol will revive him. This, you know, magically will do it. And now she's recalling a time um, when she uh, sat alone with him in the living room, um, and his um, affection for the Yaya song came came out, you know, in their conversation. And he began singing, sitting here, la la, waiting for my Yaya, um. Sitting here, la la, waiting for my Yaya, mm-hmm. By this time, his eyes were closed, and I saw him slip something into his mouth and begin chewing. 
I thought it was a piece of candy or maybe some tobacco. I'm not sure if I knew that he chewed tobacco, but who knows? The whole thing freaked me out. He asked me if I knew the song. I had vaguely heard of it. To tell you the truth, I wasn't too particular for the American music. All in a sudden, I remembered that my cousin told me he chewed dimes. Maybe that was what he put in his mouth that day. He was waiting for Yaya. Come to think of it, I never saw him eat anything. Not food, not tobacco, not a dime, not a nickel, not even a penny. For sure not buljol or any food that we would gather to eat on Sundays at his house, which was more his wife's house, and he was just there because he didn't join us or share the food or laugh or gossip or any of the things that happened when the clan, two, three, four, five times removed, would gather on a Sunday, come rain or shine. Even on cold days, we, they, we would gather. Thank you, Lolita. <laughs> can, can we talk about how you get like the, the characters' voices? Because before you read, you were talking about the importance of rhythm and mm -hmm. so rhythm in how people speak as well as in like music setting mm -hmm. some course for mm -hmm. a narrative, right? How do you, so how, how do you practice that or what, it's, it, can you actually hear your character speaking and your, you know, I think I actually do um, because, um, well, you know, I grew up with my parents' accent and the accent of the people around me and I go to Trinidad and I have relatives who are from there and in various stages of their accents, you know, newly arrived or if you're there, you know, it's a heavier accent or, you know, which I think um, some of these accents reflect. But everyone's got some kind of an accent. Um, you know, in the in the factory, I listened very carefully um, to how people um, speak because the way people speak, um, the words aren't just words. It, they're bringing a whole. They're bringing their whole lives, their whole selves, to to this conversation. So it's very important to me to to be able to understand um, why people are saying things the way that they're saying. So I. I I, I don't feel as if I could write about the characters in, in Making Bull Joel, for example, and talk in the way I'm talking to you now, because I'm not capturing them. That's not how they talk, right? Or I can't, in the story Sadie and Marquay, you know, I have to, you know, they're, you know, obviously Detroit African Americans with, uh, um, you know, a Southern influence in their, in their, in their voice. That has to come through somehow or the other so that's how you know that's pretty much um how i write i listen i listen to how people speak so are you like out in a cafe eavesdropping or just oh, any, yes. anything <laughs> <laughs> or at the grocery store yes, absolutely uh, yeah. yep and and is that something that um I don't know. So when you're you're listening, is it also something that you have a little notebook and you jot phrases down or or anything like that, or is it just the absorption that you're the awareness of it that you can bring back? A little of both. Yeah, I have a little. I I might jot down a phrase, but I I, I absorb. Um, I really listen to people, and I I find myself if I'm if I feel this story is coming through, then I'm. I'm a, I have to be in that environment a lot to really absorb what's what's going on. 
So would have an example of that then, so when you say be in that environment a lot, because um, you wrote um, a book about playing cricket in Belle Isle, like in the, the old days, and then um, I heard uh, an interview where you spoke about going to Belle Isle now, and um, I think Pakistani players are, are <laughs> keeping the cricket tradition alive. Yeah, and they, and they tr- yeah, and I watched their game, and then by this time, this is I, because when I was little, um, in the in the West Indian circuit would come through. All I wanted to to do was be on Bell Isle and play and eat. So I didn't know anything. What did I know about cricket, right? So and then I um, a lot of um, that story also came from. For me, interviewing my father at this time, he was, you know, um, kind of old and losing it a little bit. But so, I, but I actually took a tape of him talking about playing cricket. So a lot of that's in the in the story. And then, um, then it, when I needed to get some some understanding of the technicalities um, of cricket, and uh, whew, it's a complicated game. So I. I made a visit to a cousin in Canada and sat down with a bottle of um, um, liquid inspiration. Rum? Or no? Scotch. (laughs) (laughs) Dumb boys don't drink rum, nah. They drink scotch. And um, we talked about cricket. We talked about the influential cricket players, and then um, and then I went to the old area and um, talked to the Pakistanis about how do you play it. And so that was part of your research, and maybe part of what you were talking about absorbing it. I know yes. it's sort of decades difference, and now culturally shifted, but the game itself and the spirit of the game right. was was there. So you were absorbing that exactly, and the writing of this story as well. Um, at the at the first paragraph or so where where you place the character who I guess has echoes of your your father mm-hmm. then um I think you say like he's at convalescent row uh-huh. And I think I think I've seen that. I think I've heard in the boulevard yeah. in the East Boulevard, yeah, East Grand Boulevard in Detroit. It's yeah. convalescent row. Yeah, it's an interesting place and not so far from Belle Isle, which set up this great escape story for this elderly exactly. man. But see, this is the the the, the the interesting thing, how something that happened so long ago comes back so many years after, and it and it becomes such a focus. Now, in all, um, you mean the cricket or the, the cricket, okay. the whole the whole story, the whole thing. Because, but I am going to uh, give um, props to Nancy Jones, who used to be the education director, I think, at the Detroit yeah. Institute of Arts. Right? She called me up. This was years ago, and she was trying to get people to develop some little five-minute thing to read on the radio about their favorite spot in Detroit or their favorite memory of Detroit or something like that. And I immediately thought about those wonderful um, summers going to Belle Isle and the picnics and and so on and so forth. So it was with that intent that I interviewed my father about um, the um, cricket games. And and then it, I, I just had the tape, and I didn't do anything with it. And then years later, I came back to it. So you just never know. You never know. With your materials yeah. and what, the sto- what story you need to tell at the time. Exactly. And when you're ready for it, too. Because after he passed away and I listened to those tapes, I, every time I listened to it, I would bawl. Oh. 
I would cry and cry and cry in front of my kids and so on. And um, and it was years, years later that I finally was able to listen to those tapes and transcribe them and get on with the story. And hear that, hear that, capture that rhythm and the dialogue exactly. that you needed for the page. Exactly. Let's take a short break. Okay. And then we'll come back for more today. Um, I'm speaking with Lolita Hernandez, uh, Making Callaloo in Detroit, her latest story collection out with Wayne State University Press. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And today I'm lucky to be speaking with Lolita Hernandez, um, Making Callaloo in Detroit, and also Autopsy of an Engine. We've got these books on the table before us, and we've been talking about your life in the the theater, your life as a political activist, (laughs) poems about the islands and the stories and moving, um, needing space to tell a longer story. So transitioning from poems to the short story. Right. What, what do you love about the short story, Lolita? Oh, it just puts you in a whole other world and takes you outside of yourself, um, in a way that, um, poetry didn't do for me. Um, although I, I love poetry, and I don't think I was ever that good at it anyway, but I think maybe it's because I didn't have that same commitment um, to it. But um, you, you have to, um, you're, you're talking about people, you're capturing their lives, you're capturing this world, um, and it, it takes you out of yourself, I think, and and make and, it, and you have a freedom to make um, connections, to spin the tail, to to weave in a way that um, I just find incredibly um, exciting. Freedom to make connections. Mm-hmm. Um, to see beyond the obvious. So you're seeing something happen, you're recounting an event, um, and, you know, for example, the old man eating the dime and the bulge all, um, which actually in that story, um, the very subtle sexual innuendos in that conversation between the the, um, the ya-ya and the la-la and all that kind of stuff and the man looking at her and all that. But you, it gives you an opportunity to take memories and, and so on and and um, sort of sort them out, resort them, and um, reconfigure them, and, and and get to an emotional truth that's not always immediately um, apparent. If you're just going to 
journalistically, you know, tell um, what happened. So um, I, I, I find that you have to have that um, freedom to be able to, to grab whatever you have to, to throw it in that pot and, and create the emotional truth of, what, of what's going on as far as you could tell at that point. And the short story as a frame, also, you're still working with a constraint within that because you're creating that whole world. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you use that word constraint because um, that's the other thing I like about the short story. And I think it's because I did have my little poetic background because my, my mother taught me to read but through reading me poetry, believe it or not. So I, it's it's really ingrained in me. But I, what I like about short story is that tension because you, you the tension between poetry and the novel because you only have a certain amount of space to do um, a lot of work, <laughs> you know, in terms of painting the world and that, that these characters are moving in and, you know, the cityscape or whatever it is, what's happening in the room or, you know, bringing in some history and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you only have um, a limited amount of pages because if you go beyond that, it's a novella or a novel, right? (laughs) You know, if it's, of course, you know, anything less, it's flash fiction, I guess, which is still, you know, short fiction and has an amazing amount of um, attention to it. But... I, I do love that tension. That that totally excites me. And so that do you think that's also why you're you're working within the short story at well now for two books. Are you still is the short story something that you always have a few going or in the hopper? Because yeah. one was twenty five years of like with a revision, so well, each story is different. Yeah, you've got to have something going all the time. Like, I am actually working on a novel now. I actually have been working on this novel, boy, since B.C. It's Lolita been at least... Lolita's waving her hands around, just so you guys <laughs> see the visual. So imagine that. And um, I actually got to the end of this thing. So part of what I, I need to do this summer, and I know people are tired of hearing me talk about this, students and anybody who'll listen, but... I've got to go back and see what did I write and um, try and, and make some sense of it. Um, so during that process, you've got to have something else going. And that's what these, these stories were. You know, all these t- this time I've been writing, working on the novel, I'm still writing these stories, you know. Sometimes you just need to back away from something. Or sometimes an idea comes to you, like something is coming to me now and I'm starting to jot down a few little things and I know it's um, a story. Will I ever try and write a novel again? I don't know, man. That ties your life up. Who knows? But then maybe, you know, I'll get out of this thing and I'll find, you know, this novel and, you know, I'll get it published hopefully somewhere. Anybody listening wants to publish my novel. And, um, you know, maybe I'll try and write another novel. I don't know. But I think I want to write some more stories. I just love writing stories. And there's just so many stories out here. And we, we've we got stories that have to be told. You know, that um, I, don't, I don't think all the stories have been told that have been needing to be told um there are voices that are simply not heard that are there one of the things i'm really excited about making kalalu is that it it gave me an opportunity to bring although all of the stories aren't about these 
you know, West Indian characters in Detroit, a good many of them are, and it gave me a chance to bring out these lives that I think were, you know, in the interstices of the city that people didn't really know about the kinds of things, the old year's night parties and making this food and the cricket matches and so on and so forth. And in in a way, it's like you are, when you're talking about capturing the story and telling the story, like, and you are capturing the history of this time, like you're a historian, storyteller. You know, I think that that's true. I I tend to think fiction writers actually are historians in, in the sense that, you know, you, it's really it's it's hard to write a story about something that happened yesterday <laughs> you know it just you know there's so much you have to bring um to it it takes it takes a while it doesn't um i, I and i'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this but sometimes i <laughs> Not think no, <laughs> oh good i'm safe here <laughs> um I, I sometimes i think poetry allows you a, a more immediate um a response to something not to say that you can just slam out a poet and poem and you know that's it you know but um, it, po- a good poem takes a lot of work but I, I also think though it gives you um, a way to get something um, said um, that I, 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 I just can't for the life of me figure out how to do in a story quickly at all they have such, such different beasts aren't they and yeah so, so with the your love of the the, the short story and like the reckoning with it what made you decide like was it did a story come to you that was that required the space and time of a novel is that what happened Lolita yeah. or yeah that's exactly <laughs> what happened actually this is my second uh, attempt at a novel um, my first attempt um, at a novel is properly where it should be in the drawer in the drawer <laughs> Tied with a lot of tape and string, some twine, and twine, and in a three boxes, one inside the other, like right <laughs> in the darkest place it could possibly be, and that's where it shall stay. But um, this, this one, I think, I, I I learned a lot from writing that, and I and I think I managed to keep it, um, you know, alive. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'll see, I'll know. If you hear me scream, a scream coming from Ann Arbor, like in the next, or from, excuse me, from Detroit, and you hear it here, and it's that's me. <laughs> that's me with that, that novel saying, no. So, is, and, and so that's what you said, like, a little while ago, Lolita, is, like, just this summer, you're actually, you've, you've finished, like, the whole arc of the, the, first, the first draft of it. Mm-hmm. And so you're starting to reread it again mm-hmm. and see what's, and see what's, and see what's there. And in the meantime, you know, as I look at it and I'm saying, no, I'll have a little story that at least, you know, you can you can get to the end of the story quicker than I think you can get to the end of a long novel because this one's a little bit lengthy. So we'll see what happens. So so now we have a picture. I have a picture of you working where like you've you've got your desk and you've got these projects and um What's do you have like what's part do you have part of your process like some some things that that work for you or is it about kind of perseverance and the day to day coming to the writing or yeah it's just um, I think each story or each piece of work um, demands its own process so um, 
you know, when I when I get in it. Like right now, I'm just sort of clearing from the semester and, you know, the book launch and all that sort of stuff and and, and being able to see myself in the in this in the real world, <laughs> that kind of a thing, and, you know, just so I can let um you know what has to happen happen creatively as i as i approach this um novel and really um you know immerse myself in it and still have some energy left to to get this little story um going which is actually based on how mystified i am about this um someone i've met recently has has some unique little phrasings and I found them so incredibly fascinating. So. Oh, well, that's a teaser. I know I can't ask you any follow-up questions on that. Cause you've no, because I don't know. You've got to write, yeah. Well, that's the thing is you don't know. I no. think that that's the thing. It's like you don't know, and that's why you're writing the story. You know, right. some things are, yeah. something's fascinating. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's just, I, and that's how you get hooked on these things. And you keep going. And you keep going until you fi- you figure it out what's happening. But, you know, the thing is, something in you says there's a story there. And you know intuitively there's a story. Not everything is a story for everybody. You know, like what I might feel is a story. You may come to it and say, yeah, that's not a story. There's nothing there. But there's something in who I am as a person or what I'm bringing, my worldview or my perspective, my whole being, that I'm hearing this one little phrase and I'm saying to myself, there is a story in that and I know it. Why? I don't know, but I know it. It's the magic. And trust that. You got to trust it, right? Let's take a short break, and we'll be back. Today on Living Writers, Lolita Hernandez is here, making Callaloo in Detroit, the latest collection of short stories. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Well, the girls in town feeling bad. No more Yankees in Trinidad. They're going to close down the base for good. Them girls have to make out how they could. Hey, brother, it's now they pack up his tongue. In for a penny and in for a pound. Believe me, it's competition for so. Travel in the town when the price drop low. So when you bounce up, Gina, Dinah, Rosita, and Clementina. Mama, round the corner, posing. Bet your life is something they're selling. And if you catch them broke, you can get them all for nothing. Don't make a row. The Yankees gonna sparrow the
You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Lolita Hernandez is here. We've been talking about making Callaloo in Detroit. Um, your latest story collection, Lolita, out with Wayne State University Press this year. Um, and but we have we have another book on the table with us. Your book from Coffee House Press, kindly sent by Molly Mikulowski, um some years ago, and I, which I've been wanting to talk with you forever about as well. Um, and we've been talking about, let's see, Boudreaux? Boudreaux. Yeah. And so we've been, and, and I was getting hungry, actually, when you were talking about the salted codfish and the, um, and so we've been talking and talking about music. So food and music. Can you talk a little bit about those, like how these influence your work or, or your imaginative life? Or what you believe is at stake in writing. <laughs> Any one of these things. Well, you know, um, I think f- food um, um, is so essential to anybody's um, culture, and and it's and I'm, I I sometimes think that through food that women become really um, the guardians of the culture because they're the ones like it or not who are predominantly in the kitchen preparing the food and so on and so forth so i don't know although my father cooked and i know a lot of men who cook a lot of really great um food i guess somewhere um in my mind um i'm i'm always connecting food and and women and culture and my mother used to love to dance so i and my sister-in-law used to love to dance so I'm, i always connect the music um in that way um as as well and i and i notice i even did that in autopsy of an engine like for example thanks to abby wilson in that story um here's a woman who's who um, sort of um, remembers the line through pound cakes of all things. She's making pound cakes, and she actually recreates the line, and um, through physical movement, and then makes pound cakes um, for everyone as a way of expressing her. Uh, I don't know her communal spirit with the people in the in the in the line and her. This is what she's bringing um, to that, and I and I think that's um, really um, pretty fascinating. And um, how I arrived at the pound cake thing is that at the time I was pregnant with my my daughter, who is um, now. She just turned 30. Oh, my gosh. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. (laughs) And um, there was a woman I knew, didn't work at the plant um, at all, but she made pound cakes. And her pound cakes were like, Drugs, man. They was they're the, so good. Oh my goodness! A good pound cake. She was amazing. Those yeah, things would yeah. melt, and it was like, bet you can't just have one slice. No, you bet you can't just eat one pound cake. You know, and she would make them for me, and that's where the image of the of uh. the pound cakes um, came from. It's like she put everything into it, and I and I think that's how the food you know, is for me, like the woman making bakes, trying to make the callaloo, trying to communicate something through. Trying to make the fried chicken. The fried chicken, trying to communicate something um, through um, the food. So it's a heavy, it's a heavy image with me. It comes, it comes kind of natural. 
and I'm so I'm wondering with the uh, I mean I I wonder if you could even know this like in this as the new short stories are coming to you like this because these the one in making Kalalu the stories here like you said like the making stories like there's the food there's the music everything is and it's the stepping outside it's like into the city into the community um, like do you think this is something that these new stories will also carry with them or will they I mean kind of have their own band of the, I have no idea I have no idea but I can tell you that the, the novel um, I can tell you this about the novel whet your appetite and somebody out there who wants to publish it <laughs> that's right we're looking for a home we're looking for a home for this thing that it it's, it is based in, in Detroit and it has um, two characters one from a Spanish speaking uh, fictional Caribbean island and one from an English speaking uh, fictional um Caribbean island. Why fictional? So I could say whatever I want, okay? For the best. So, for the, the best. best, yeah. And But this food is so, um, I mean, food is so central um, to everything that happens in this in this book that I, I wonder, like, what the heck is going on with me um, with this thing? Now, what's going to happen um, with more stories that I write? I don't know. It's hard to say. And do you have short stories, or is this the the one that you're talking about with the phrases that that you know that there's mm-hmm. a story there? Are there other ones that you have that are that I want that to write, in the yeah. hop, or or just on okay, yeah, sort of on deck? Yeah, that I have notes on that I just sort of didn't get get to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, it takes time. It takes it's time, the time yeah. isn't it? Um, well, maybe maybe now is a good. A good time to mention um, this this T-shirt that you've brought in. Vote for Pedro. <laughs> very so very words up front, right? Okay, so it comes from the movie uh, Napoleon Dynamite. My son, the stand-up comic in Los Angeles, who goes by the stage name of Black Pedro. He's been here, as a matter of fact. He came with um, one of his co- comedian friends, um, Johnny. Johnny Walker, I kid you not, that's, that's his, his name, his stage and name. And that's his, no, that's his name, oh, his real Johnny name. Walker. Oh, okay. And they, the two of them came here for the, uh, um, they were sponsored by the RC and, and Semester in Detroit and the, um, the uh, U of M Detroit Center um, during uh, the university's race theme semester. And they did um, some comedy and they visited some classes and it was just, they were absolutely um, incredible. Anyhow, this vote for for Pedro shirt comes out of the movie Na- Napoleon Dynamite. So um, I wear it um, when I, f- I feel like, um, you know, I need to vote for Pedro. And so people all walk down the street, especially in in southwest Detroit, and somebody will say, what's he running for? And I'll say, his life. <laughs> I can see where your son gets his sense of humor. Or then. maybe I get it from him. I don't know. You know, <laughs> They raised me well, my children. <laughs> and, and so, Lolita, um, let's, let's go back a little bit to talk, because I feel like we haven't talked a lot about Autopsy of an Engine. Um, so for this book, you actually wrote a, a preface. Um, to, and so you've got this nonfiction essay that leads off the fictional stories. 
just as a structural moment, um, nice. We go from comedy, and now I'm like, and the serious this nature of serious structure here. opens up in a uh, Elmwood Cemetery here. <laughs> it does, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, yeah, nice, nice um, segue on my part, right? But perfect. So, so why, so why did you feel it was that, like, why the preface before the collection of short stories, the fiction? What did you think was important oh, about that? You know what? This story was actually, or this introduction was actually an article that I wrote for the Metro Times when the um, the assembly line went down in 1994. Does that, does that sound right? Or was it 2004? Oh, I can't remember. That's what it stated, I think, and then revised 2004, does it say? It, it was written in 1994, and it was revised in 2004. Thank you. You know my work better than <laughs> I do. And so the other, the, the revision that was in here was this, um, the, the uh, lifting of the smokestacks. I tried like the devil to get a story out of lifting those smokestacks. It's the most phenomenal it's, thing. It sounds, it sounds phenomenal. It was amazing. And I talked to the, uh, um, the, I think it was a millwright who told me how the whole, the, how they arrived at the whole thing with the, the pinhole and the, the balloon. balloon. <laughs> and just, I mean, who thinks of stuff like that? And engineers. lifting of the engineers. Um, <laughs> but this goodness. was actually uh, not an engineer. Oh, was it? Was a, oh. it was a skilled tradesman. The skilled trades guys who thought about it. And um, your department wasn't my department. Was, no, oh. these were millwrights and, oh. and so on and so forth. And so they did because millwrights in the plant move things. So that's who these guys were. And um, so when when it was time to get this collection together, I said, you know what? I'm going to put this in the introduction because people need to know how these smokestacks were moved. They need to know how a plant is moved, how a facility like that, um, how you close it down, I mean, how you get rid of things, how you, you know, get rid of salvage, how you get rid of the tools, the assembly line. I mean, that's a massive undertaking. So um, and so and you and by the sounds of it, you were working it within a story, but it just wasn't taking. And could, you were like, "This it was not happening." It, be. it was not happening. I did everything I could to get that story to happen that way, and it, but, it didn't. But you knew it had to then be in this nonfiction format. I put it in and here, and so that yeah. made sense. Is that why then in the the next story collection that you begin with mm-hmm. an intro too? Is yeah. That, was it so? It's something that you've like a rhythm you've created for your own story collections, or well, not really. Um, but, uh, the um, publisher asked me. My acquisitions editor, Annie Martin, suggested that I write a little preface because some of these, um, you know, Kalaloo and Buljal and all that is like, what is that stuff? Who eats that stuff? Well, you know. <laughs> well, we're gonna meet some people, some very dear people who do. Yeah. Um, so, so Dasheen leaves. Can you, uh, t- well, that's, they're in the making of Kalaloo. Right. That's right, the, the dasheen bush is like the the leaves from the Edels plant. And in Trinidad, anybody who knows um, island food knows that all this is Trinidad food, right? Trinidad and Tobago food. But um, that the, the, they call it the bush from the dasheen. That's what makes the, the, the Kalaloo. When I was growing up, actually, um, I we didn't couldn't get it um so easily in Detroit so they would use spinach oh which seems like a a sorry second in this case spinach it's, has its it's okay it's okay use, but, but it's it's not like having uh-huh. dashing bush now you go to Toronto you can get dashing bush like nothing 
But now, but in but in Detroit, it's just, I don't know where to get. Okay, maybe Detroit. we can't grow it here then because it's not tropical enough. Or that was the basis of the story. R- well, I actually grew it in their house, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's, in her or, yard or in her yard. All that other stuff is all made up. <laughs> Waylon Jennings yeah, and all yeah. that, but <laughs> she I actually, right I, along I, yeah, <laughs> she grew it in her yard. And that was the first time I ever had real callaloo with real callaloo bush. So that that was the genesis uh, or the or like the origin for this that fictional story. story. Yeah. The magic of growing dashing bush on the northwest side of Detroit. Come on. <laughs> There's that's a story right there, okay? <laughs> and for some reason I feel like the bush could be very menacing too. Um <laughs> See, I don't even know. It wasn't this story. It was death and all that and kind of stuff going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of stuff so, going on. Which, there. which is so. The thing is, is like where you have this genesis is not like where you take it is like where you were saying it's like the it's the like not something obvious at all. It's completely underneath or around or above with your story, Lolita. Exactly. The surprises of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this isn't Reader's Digest. We're talking about here you know i mean this is you got to do you know it's fiction it's literary fiction it's got magic it's got to be some magic in it some magic in, in your mission in my mission <laughs> alita thanks so much for being on the thank you today. thank you this has been fun come back anytime okay and we'll, uh, let's remind everyone to just looking ahead to get your calendars out folks um friday september 26th in the fall lolita hernandez will be at the residential college reading stories from making callaloo in detroit um so you can you can go and see lolita uh hear the stories in person there that's september 26th um lolita thanks again so much Thank for you being too. here um, thanks to the liz for engineering yay liz <laughs> <laughs> All of you out there for listening, longtime listeners, Lewis and Chloe, um, and then Sally in Florida. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks, Lolita Hernandez. Okay. Um, until next time. WCBN-FM Ann Arbor.
We're airing selected hours from our extensive broadcast archive and new live and pre-recorded shows during the current emergency. Check our schedule at WCBN.org. Wash, wash, wash your hands, got to get them clean. Every finger one by one and lather in between. Wash, wash, wash your hands, got to get them clean. Every finger one by one and lather in between. 